Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod. I'm Anagreta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and physician and I'm the Human Futures Fellow at the College of Health and Medicine here at the Australian National University. Last week I crossed the mic and was part of a panel with Sharon Friel where we discussed the ways in which inflation and the cost of living crisis is impacting on people's health and on our well-being and on the ability of those who need it to access a strained healthcare system. Today, my co-host Sharon Bessel and I are again swapping places as Sharon gets to jump the mic this week into the hot seat. Both of us have so been so delighted to be able to engage in the substantive issues that we work on on a daily basis through this pod. Policy Forum Pod is, of course, based here at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. You can visit crawford.anu.edu.au slash study if you want to find out more about the amazing range of degree programs and short courses that are on offer. In today's episode, we're going to again explore the impacts of cost of living and inflation crisis, this time on vulnerability, insecurity and on poverty. Over recent months, we've heard shocking reports of people making almost impossible decisions as the cost of food, housing, fuel and other essential items continues to rise. There are seemingly endless reports of people cutting back and many people hurting. And of course, many of these challenges, including very high rates of child poverty and housing unaffordability, predate this current economic crisis. Just this week, Treasurer Jim Chalmers warned that there is more pain ahead as inflation continues to rise. He also spoke of the very dire state of our federal budget that the government has inherited, noting that there's very little funding even to implement the greatest ideas. These are challenging times. Times which are impacting on our health and well-being and impact not just on our present today, but will influence our future. So I'm so glad to bring today's discussion on poverty, vulnerability and insecurity to the pod. And I'd like to start by introducing our two amazing guests. Sharon, most people know you as my co-conspirator, but would you like to do the honours of introducing yourself to the pod? Hi, Anna Greta. It is very exciting to be on this side of the mic um, and particularly to be able to talk about this topic. So lots of our listeners will know me as your co-host, a role that I love playing, but I'm also Director of the Children's Policy Centre and of the Poverty and Inequality Research Centre at the Crawford School. And my research for about the past 25 years has really focused on the way in which policies impact children's lives 
um, and how children experience those policies from, from their own perspective. So a lot of my work is participatory research with children and young people. Um, and much of that work is focused on children who are in situations that could be described as, as vulnerable, um, children who are living with insecurity, children who are, are living in poverty. Um, and that research has really focused on exploring what children's lives are, learning about the incredible strengths that children have, but also looking at the way in which systems are often failing them. Sharon, it's so wonderful to be able to have your expertise uh, front and centre in today's podcast. So it's great to have you with us. We also have the pleasure of John Falzon, who's a longtime friend and guest on the pod, and it really is great to have you back with us. John, would you like to introduce yourself to the podcast listeners? Thanks, Anna Greta. And uh, like Sharon, uh, I'm very much delighted uh, to be joining you both for this conversation. Um, it's one of it's one of the the highlights for me is uh, is joining um, this uh, this podcast. We always have such fruitful conversations that are enormously inspiring and uh, informative to me and uh, really help steer my thinking. Uh, so my name is John Falzon. Um, I'm Senior Fellow Inequality and Social Justice at Per Capita, a Melbourne-based think tank, uh, but I'm joining you from uh, unceded Ngunnawal country uh, and I pay my respects to Elders past and present. I've spent most of my working life in, uh, in the community sector, uh, a little bit in academia as well and in research and advocacy primarily. Um, Twelve years uh, I headed up Vinnie's and uh, that was uh, an amazing experience. But uh, prior to that, I, um, I, I worked in community development in public housing estates, which um, played an incredibly formative role in my thinking about the need for um, people uh, to be empowered to, you know, that sense of self-determination and self-empowerment as the only real path forward if we want a greater democratisation of society, of the economy and of life. These are themes that, that do come up from time to time in the, the conversations we have on the pod. John, it's so great to have you with us. Uh, and, of course, the bit that you didn't mention was the fact that you're quite an accomplished poet, I'd like to start by some context setting. John, could you describe the vulnerability, insecurity and poverty in Australia that was present prior to the pandemic? How would you describe the landscape? Um, so prior to the pandemic, uh, we had a situation where a, uh, a large swathe of the population uh, was excluded from uh a, a decent income. We had uh, a large number of people, of course, experiencing unemployment and underemployment, uh, but also uh, people who were not in paid work due to caring responsibilities, uh, disability, living with a disability, age or other circumstances. Most importantly, though, we had a framework this sounds a bit strange, it feels a bit strange to me uh, speaking in past tense because most of the things I'm saying, sadly, still remain the case since the pandemic uh, with some significant um, variations on those themes. But we had a, a very strong neoliberal framework which did its utmost, uh, or the purveyors of it did, it, did their utmost to make people feel as if they only have themselves to blame 
if they are either not in paid work or in low paid and insecure work. So, you know, you could say that the, the two principles of the neoliberal consensus, which presided over that landscape that you asked about, were that um, you as an individual must bear the chief or sole responsibility for your own protection. So, you know, if, if you are unsafe, if you are living exposed to precarity, you only have yourself to blame and you are the solution to getting yourself out. And the second principle was that markets rather than governments are the primary means of ensuring that protection of our living standards, our livelihoods and the provision of essentials, even though, even though, and here's the, here's the, the, uh, the clincher, uh, even though it was acknowledged always that these were heavily, unevenly, unequally distributed. That's a really powerful framework, I think, to start this conversation. Uh, and, and as you're mapping that landscape, John, I'm thinking about the current challenges in the Australian landscape with coronavirus pandemic and ongoing problems with inf- infection um, and and reminded that those those that framework has not changed, uh, that we still have a lot of uh, individual vulnerability um, and a structural response which is not really caring. Sharon, how do these issues that John's mapped out so powerfully uh, impact on children particularly through your work? Look, I I think that point that John makes about the influence of uh, neoliberal thinking and what that framework has done to policy is really central to this. You know, those two points that John makes about the the characteristics of a neoliberal approach really explain a great deal about the, 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 the framing that we have. If we think about child poverty specifically, you know, the headline numbers are probably fairly well known to people um, because they, they've been um, often used. And so prior to the pandemic, one in six children in Australia lived in income poverty. Now, an important point to make here is that we don't have an official poverty line in Australia. We don't have anything like, and we haven't had anything like, a national plan of action to address poverty or to address child poverty. And so when we say one in six children lived in income poverty, we're using um, the the OECD definition of people who are 50% below median income. And the University of New South Wales and ACOS have done mapping for years to determine how many people are in poverty. So in a country that is incredibly wealthy, where Credit Suisse very often ranks Australia as being one of the wealthiest countries in the world um, in terms of assets that are often concentrated in the hands of, of a very few, one in six children are, are growing up in poverty. Children who are in sole parent families, and that's usually sole mother families, are much more likely to be living in income poverty, particularly if that family relied on income support. Um, And like John, I'm speaking in the past tense, but this is still a very pressing issue. So across the 2010s, we saw poverty deepen for sole parent families who were on income support and had children under the age of 15. So in 2016, 67% of sole parent families with children aged between 10 and 14 years lived in income poverty. That is shocking. You know, the figure was around 58% for children under the age of four. So nearly 60% 
of tiny little children where we know development is so important were living in poverty. Um, and around 55% of families with children between five and nine were living in poverty. So the numbers are really shocking. And if I could just say a little bit more uh, about the reason for that, it was driven by policy decisions and the introduction of welfare-to-work policies and the movement from sole parent pension payments to lower allowances. Um, and those allowances came with conditionalities and expected usually mothers to be working even with very young children. Um, we've also got a broken system of child support that Kay Cook has written about so powerfully, where sole parents, usually mothers, don't receive support from the other parent when they're, they're looking after their children. And we see intersectionality playing out here really powerfully. So if you imagine a woman who takes the incredibly courageous step to escape domestic violence with her children then has to face the prospect of homelessness, has to move on to sole parent allowances, which are going to necessarily put her below the poverty line and perhaps experiences some kind of disability, her life is shot and her children's lives are going to be damaged because we have made policy decisions to let those families live in poverty. Some of this mirrors work that we've done internationally where women particularly women living with a disability and often older women, um, are most vulnerable to, to poverty. So we know how intersectionality plays out. We know what happens when we put conditionality on very low incomes and child poverty is the result and we've been prepared to accept that. Sharon, can I ask you just a little bit about the intergenerational consequences of these sorts of policy decisions? And, and you've just painted a really powerful picture of the, the impacts of, of, uh, of uh, sole parenting and uh, particularly through adversity, particularly issues around domestic violence and then uh, looking for housing and accommodation and the financial impacts. What do we know about that intergenerational impact? What do we know about the impact for the, the children who are who are caught up in in that cycle of of poverty and disadvantage? Uh, are, are they able to get ahead? You know, that's always been the great myth. Uh, perhaps I, I think it might be a myth of the neoliberal model is that there's always the capacity to 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 change that. Is that true? No. Um, the short the short answer is no. I'd, I'd preface the response, though, by saying that what's really important, and, and I see this in my research again and again, and I, I suspect John would probably also um, have experiences of this, that this is not about bad parenting. It's not about parents not trying to do the right thing by their children. You know, in my research, I am continually in awe of what parents try to do for their children um, in these con contexts of real vulnerability and um, and insecurity. And so I think that's really important for us to keep in mind that, that for the most part, parents want the best and do the best by their children, but the system and the structures often prevent that from happening. So when children grow up in situations of income or multidimensional poverty, then their prospects are, are less good, shall we say, than children who grow up with, with lots of advantages. And we are seeing in Australia some of those cycles of what we call intergenerational poverty, um, we see 
um, real barriers to social mobility. Now, social mobility, I think, has some some problems with that term because it assumes that there is one right pathway up. And there are many different ways that people want to live their lives. But if children grow up in, in contexts of, of dire poverty, we have a range of issues playing out from, in some cases, children not having sufficient nutritional intake during those those critical years because parents just can't afford it. We often have barriers to healthcare. We're seeing that playing out at the moment where people simply can't afford healthcare, including for their children. I've heard stories of um, uh, from from people, um, you know, including mums on, on sole parent income support, who are being told that they need to wait two or three years to get into a psychologist for a child who has very serious mental health issues, often related to the the context that they're growing up in. And of course, in Australia, we have an education system that is one of the most inequitable in the OECD. And so children who are growing up in families and in communities that are experiencing income hardship also have the added issue of not being able to access very high quality education. And again, that is not down to teachers who are often incredibly committed. It's down to a system where we've allowed inequality to not just exist, but to deepen. And that impacts children throughout their lives. So intergenerational poverty is real. This comes back, I think, quite elegantly to the conversation we had last week with Sharon Friel and what I see as a clinician working as a cardiologist is that those who, who face adversity, those who, who uh, particularly deal with multidimensional poverty in childhood are more likely to require the services of a cardiology cardiologist at a younger age. This impacts on adult health in really meaningful ways. And so the benefits of attention to this, I think, are, are so profound across our community. John, are there any other factors that you think are leading to vulnerability in security, poverty, pre-COVID that we haven't mentioned already? Uh, no, I think Sharon has uh, has done a, a wonderful job at, at mapping out uh, the detail uh, that lies beneath that landscape of inequality uh, across Australia. Um, I'd, I'd simply... Um, Say this, uh, you know, and it's re- it's not. I'm re- not really adding anything to what Sharon has said so beautifully, um, but um, she has spurred me on to uh, to sort of reflect in this direction. And that is, you know, that whole discourse, that moralising discourse, uh, particularly targeting women, particularly targeting uh, mothers. Uh, in relation to uh, child poverty, uh, is is an absolutely uh, toxic toxic and destructive uh, um, ingredient in uh, in social policy discourse and uh, we've we have got to aggressively uh, rid ourselves of that language and that thinking uh, I can recall ministers and prime ministers from both sides of politics over the years uh, using precisely that language I, mean, I remember one occasion a prime minister um, Sayings uh, you know, along the lines of, you know, we're on the side of those uh, parents who set the clock in the morning, get out of bed, get them, get the kids off to school, and get themselves to work. And all of that sounds so wholesome, um, you, know, you know, no one could possibly disagree with it. Uh, and yet, the, the the messaging was very clearly that if you 
Uh, and uh, yeah, particularly if you are a member of a family, including children, if there is an experience, if you are experiencing poverty, hardship, if housing stress, if you're at risk of homelessness, um, it's on you and you can pull yourself out of it. Uh, just as easily as you got yourself into it. And that's incredibly offensive, um, you know, particularly in the light of, um, you know, what Sharon, uh, uh, both of you alluded to regarding gendered violence. Um, you know, the, the fact of the matter is patriarchy is a major, major driver of, of uh, you know, economic and social inequality uh, and homelessness. You know, when we, when, when we uh, you know, think about homelessness in, in Australia, it's, it's not accidental. You know, it's a symptom of the neoliberalism, the patriarchy, the colonisation, uh, you know, the ableism, you know, the the uh, you know, queer phobia, all of all of those, uh, any, any form of oppressive apparatus has deliberately delivered those levels of inequality. Um, so. I, I have mentioned on this uh, program before, and. Um, uh, I'd, I'd just like to reinsert the um, that wonderful framework from the theorist Judith Butler regarding the difference between precariousness and precarity, because I think it goes to the heart of what we're reflecting on. And uh, you know, Judith Butler says precariousness means simply you know, that one's life is always in is in some ways always in the hands of the other. It's a beautiful concept. We're born. Life is precarious, you know, from the moment we're born. We're in the hands of someone else uh, and there are times in our life when we need other people more than other times. Um, and then precarity, uh, Butler says, however, is very different. It's that politically induced condition so that certain populations suffer from failing social and economic networks of support and become differentially exposed to injury, violence, and death. And I think that is a brilliant summation of what we have been uh, discussing here today. Uh, and, of course, the key lies in accepting that precarity is manufactured and, therefore, as a society, particularly through government, not, not exclusively, but particularly through government, uh, we must create the means to address the impact of that manufactured precarity and to to transform it so that rather than people feeling that they are left alone to face that precarity, that as, as a community we uh, create the space for us to care for each other and for ourselves. And the pandemic, I think, has highlighted this in spades that, you know, if we go that that route of it's everyone for themselves, we are all, we are all endangered severely. Whereas if we take social, you know, a, a collective social approach to pooling our resources to make sure that that differential exposure to danger is reduced and and eventually eliminated, that's our only means for survival, whether we're talking about the pandemic, whether we're talking about the climate emergency, whether we're talking about um, economic inequality and homelessness, for instance. John, I think that that framework is just so incredibly powerful. And I think if we can really embrace that that idea of precariousness, it begins to lead us to empathy. And where we have been in this country is that empathy is provided 
very conditionally. You know, we, we can be empathetic towards people who look like us, who live their lives like us, but not to those who may in any way be, be different. And so if we can use that idea of precariousness to become a more empathetic and a more inclusive society, then we immediately start to resolve the problem of precarity because we begin to be as concerned about others as we are about ourselves. We begin to be as concerned about ensuring that in times of precariousness, we're all protected. So that is such a powerful way of thinking about these issues. It really is a great framework. And of course, we had that six-month window uh, during 2020 here in Australia where social security supports gave people a dignified life. And I know, Sharon, in your work, you saw the benefits of that. And I I know clinically in the patients that I care for, um, I saw an amazing uh, impact of just simply giving people adequate financial resources to care for themselves and to care for the environment around them. Anna Greta, I know you need to, to, to kind of take a break very, very soon, but I did just want to make one comment on that. I think that's absolutely right. We saw that wonderful possibility. But we also saw, I, I would argue, the other side of that, and this goes to John's point earlier about the market, um, we saw through JobKeeper the provision to a large number of, of corporations, you know, support to keep their workers. And we saw that in some cases, those large corporations did not keep their part of the bargain. They did not protect their workers. They did not keep those people employed. And I think we also need to look very closely at that failure and that decision on the part of corporations that receive state support to increase people's precarity. And, and I think that's an important part of this story that we need to hold on to and we need to tell and we need to learn from. There is a lot to learn from just the last couple of years here in Australia. Uh, and we do, of course, have an interesting time in front of us now and into the months ahead. We're going to take a really short break now and we'll come back in just a moment. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Around the world... Democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. I'm here with John Falzon and Sharon Bessel. We're talking about vulnerability, insecurity and poverty in the context of increasing inflation and the soaring cost of living in Australia and around the world. We've heard about some of the many challenges that people are facing, and I thought we might start by asking uh, John and Sharon about what they've already seen in terms of the impacts of inflation and the rising cost of living. John, what are you seeing in our community uh, in how the, co- the increasing cost of living is impacting on, on those with whom you're working? 
I'd like I'd like to um, to riff off what uh, what Sharon just uh, commented on actually before the break, and that is, um, you know, you can't look at inflation or cost of living crisis without looking at that big picture uh, as to who who is benefiting during these hard times, and we know that there were record profits. Um, you know, throughout the pandemic, not for all sectors uh, of the economy, but um, for significant sectors, uh, including some of the companies that uh, that chose to uh, to hang on to um, to uh, to JobKeeper uh, payments, even though they were doing very nicely. Thank you very much. So we've seen not just since the pandemic, but uh, prior to that, we've seen a a, tra- a trajectory whereby the the wages share has has decreased or remained stagnant. Um, well, it's, it's actually as a share, it's actually decreased. Uh, wages for, for some of that time have remained stagnant, stagnant but um, we're seeing an actual decline in real terms. So the March budget forecast um, is, is talking about a real wages going backwards by 1.5%. Um, we're seeing the emergence of uh, inflation as a, as a major concern. Uh, the Reserve Bank uh, is saying that it could be as high as 7% by the end of the year. But let's go back to that share of profits because, you know, we're hearing a lot of commentary which says, well, we've got to be keep the lid on wages, uh, otherwise we're going to have an infl- a, wa- a wage-fed inflationary spiral. But what we are witnessing is a profits-led inflationary spiral. And it's that share of profits that remains untouched. It's it's sort of this sacred cow. You can't touch that because if you do, we we will all suffer dire consequences. You know, business will will pick up and leave if they can't maintain um, these super profit margins uh, whilst keeping a lid on wages. So the wages, you know, the ordinary working people, uh, they are not able to keep up with the cost of living. As for those uh, that section of the working class that is is, is not in paid work, uh, you know the, the, that, that that's an even harsher story. Uh, with you know, of course job seeker payments currently, you know, people having to survive uh, on forty six dollars a day. So you know it's no surprise that in this in- economic environment we are going to see an even steeper. Um, experience of people having to choose, we're already seeing it, uh, choose between, for instance, medication and, and dinner, uh, or, uh, keeping the electric, you know, heating, heating in winter and paying the rent. Housing costs alone, I mean, you know, you, you, even before this, this period of, of, uh, of significant inflation, overall cost of housing between 1994 and 2018, Remain pretty static for the top twenty percent of the income distribution, increased by about two to three percent for the middle sixty percent. But there was a dramatic increase of seven percent for the 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 poorest twenty percent of the population. So the way the cost of living crisis uh, impacts a household is very much correlated with uh, its level of income, whether it's on uh, income support payments or. Uh, you know, we're, we're seeing the highest level of people having to work multiple jobs 
because of the entrenchment uh, of insecure work at low wages as part of, I mean, yeah, it really is an important part of that uh, attempts to boost profits at the expense of all of us. But I would just like to add this. It's not just about the wages share going backwards. Uh, we need to talk about that social share going backwards. And by that, I mean taxation uh, placed on uh, corporations and high income earners going towards the, the kind of non-cash uh, social services that um, that you know, as we have noted, have been severely denuded uh, and disrupted uh, during the the neoliberal era. Uh, well, a good example of that, sorry, if I, if I could just uh, add, uh, is um, is our percentage of of social housing in Australia. You know, really interesting. In the early nineteen nineties, we had seven percent of total housing stock was social housing. Now. It's three point one percent. So when we talk about uh, you, know, a, a, you know that scenario of a woman uh, you know leaving a situation of gendered violence, um, this is an important part of of what they face. The, the, this incredibly shrinking proportion of of housing stock being social. Just for a, an international comparison, though, you know we're three point one percent. The UK has 16% of its housing stock as social housing. Austria, 37.7%. Absolutely remarkable. It's, it's, so it's all the social determinants of health that are impacted by inflation, the, the cost of housing, the cost of education, the cost of healthcare, the cost of travel and, and accommodation. Sharon, are there particular in, impacts on children? Yeah, look, John has so powerfully described the, the the macro context, if you like, you know what's what's happening um, to individuals and to families. I wanted to just take it down to the the micro level, if you like, but take it down to what this looks like from a child's standpoint, based on some of the research that that we've done. Um, and so you think about an eight year old who is hungry a lot of the time, who talks about having a very limited range of food um, available. Every night it's it's mince and not much else. But that child also talks about not wanting to tell mum how hungry he is because he's observed that if he said he's hungry, his mum eats less. And they're the kinds of things we hear from children around food insecurity. You think about the way a child feels. And sorry, I I feel very emotional when I share these stories. The way a child feels the moment mum and dad say, we're moving into a tent. It's not camping. It's not for fun, but we're going to try to make it fun. But we don't know when we'll have a home again. You think about a child who can't see a future for themselves or their families because all of their emotional energy is taken up with the hardship of life despite what their parents are trying to do and a child who simply stops asking, stops asking to go on school excursions, stops asking for things that they might want because they know mum and dad can't afford it and they don't want to put more pressure onto their parents. And so they start to limit their own lives because they want to protect their children. 
That's what this looks like when you're a hungry eight-year-old. That's a fairly powerful way to address this problem. We need better solutions. Let's start to talk about the possible solutions and the way forward. The new federal government's already signalled a different approach. They're using different language, including words like kindness and care. Is the language that we use when we're talking about issues of vulnerability and insecurity and poverty, is that important? Absolutely. Um, you know, how we talk about something um, is, is not only a descriptor of what is happening, it's um, in some ways a descriptor of, of what we aspire to uh, collectively. Uh, so, you know, um, I remember during the, the GFC and, um, you know, when, the, when the, the Rudd government had, you know, made that massive injection of funding into social housing, it was quite unprecedented. And I remember saying um, to the government at the day, this is great, uh, but you also need to take the lead in using this op- this, this uh, particular historical conjuncture to talk about housing is, is social housing is a good thing rather than stigmatised, rather than residual. This is something we should be enormously proud of. And I said, ditto with our social security. You know, too long have we lived with that language of saying, you know, People, people are leaners or, you know, bludgers or, you know, failures, fa- failures somehow for needing to use social security. We must celebrate the fact that we have a, a social security system where we can look after each other when we need it uh, and, uh, and stop blaming people. And we can talk about structural unemployment, you know, rather than people making uh, bad choices. Uh, unfortunately, that was not embraced. We do have a great opportunity to do that now, uh, as you have, have indicated, Anna Greta. And one of the you know, things that I would dearly love to see, and Sharon has alluded to it, uh, is completely to, to completely reframe that notion of conditionality. We need to consign to the dustbins of history the way welfare conditionality has been framed. We still live with with uh, you know that that uh, that sense of demonisation, and you need to prove you are worthy of what you are getting because what you are getting is coming out of the pockets of people who work hard. We need to obliterate that kind of distinction between so-called deserving and undeserving, uh, and we need to have a stronger sense of of solidarity. Um, you know, across the population, uh, which is not encouraged when you use that kind of language of people needing to step up and, um, and, you know, earn, earn the right to public housing or to, uh, to income support or whatever the case may be. As far as the specifics around welfare conditionality in the social security system, um, what I proposed in a, in a paper um, I wrote towards the end of 2020 a paper called We've Got Your Back, Building a Framework That Protects Us from Precarity. And if anyone's interested, it's available. Uh, on You can check it out on the per capita uh, website. But um, I, I spoke about the need for a social guarantee, uh, which encompasses a housing first, 
full employment, income adequacy, um, national employment service rather than, um, you know, prop- profiteers, uh, you know, make- making money out of people who are unemployed, a gender lens, of course, and a strong municipal and regional focus. And in there, of course, is the need, the urgent need to reframe conditionality. Yes, people need to have conditions because, you know, the very by virtue of something being something that is administrated, uh, uh, administered as a as a as a system, there are going to be administrative requirements for people to be able to use the social security system, not jump through hoops, not be made to feel like they are less than, not be made to feel like they uh, they are sponging on everyone else because that's simply offensive and untrue and I you know we, we've lived for so long with this notion of of mutual obligation or you know its predecessor under under um, Hawke and Keating was was reciprocal obligation um, you know this notion that you know you've got to give give back you know well I'd like to to see that replaced with something radically simple Instead of mutual obligation, why can't we have a system predicated on the principle of mutual respect where the people, you know, when we need assistance, when we need to use social infrastructure, whether it's the pu- public health, public education, public housing, um, social security, that, you know, we, we should do so knowing that we are inherently respected just as we 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 give respect to the workers in those uh, providing those services uh, to each other uh, and to society. I mean, that's a positive frame rather than this negative frame of you've already been bad, so you better not uh, be you know behave even worse by not doing what you're told. That kind of paternalistic uh, discourse is just is just so disempowering and humiliating. Sharon, did you have thoughts about the role of language? Look, I, I agree entirely what with with the comments that, that John has made, and I think he's so powerfully mapped out, you know, how we can begin to rethink, how we can begin not to tinker with the edges of a system that's broken, um, but actually transform it by the way we talk about it and then um, through our actions. I, I wanted to, to just add one point to, to what John has said, and that is I, I think we have a lot of reparatory work to do. The language that has been used um, over the past couple of decades to stigmatise people who are in difficult situations has left really deep scars. I think all of us remember you know, Joe Hockey's comments when he was treasuring the Abbott government about lifters and leaners, and that's not the only example, despite it being a very powerful one. And I think those scars are so deep that for people experiencing hardship, they've often internalised that blame. And so even having a conversation about poverty makes people feel really uneasy, makes people feel that they're being blamed all over again for their situation. And so I think for us to, to move forward, we have to have honest conversations. We have to talk about poverty, but we have to do it in a way that shifts the focus to the structural barriers to the systemic failures and uses language that helps to repair those scars that people are carrying from that labelling harsh and cruel language that has characterised poverty for a very long time now. 
So there is new language being used and it is tremendously important, mostly because it helps us to think uh, much more compassionately and and with a, a more inclusive lens. But despite this new language being used, there are enormous challenges in the Australian landscape. There's ongoing debate about this tension between our fiscal situation and the budget deficit and providing adequate income support to those who are dependent on government support. How should policymakers approach this deep tension between budgetary constraints and the need for adequate support and caring across our community? Uh, I think the the current government is in an unenviable situation and I was struck by a press conference that the Chambers held, I think it was earlier this week, when he talked about the dire state of the budget and made the comment that there's no money even to fund good ideas. Um, Now, I think this is a result of of a decade of neglect and of rampant disregard for people's well-being, but also for for the environment. So we've really got a problem. Um, But if we genuinely want to address poverty in Australia, if we genuinely want to end child poverty in Australia, we have to change the current situation where living on working age benefits means that a, a family, an individual, the children within that family will necessarily live in poverty. Doing that's going to be expensive. You know, Ben Phillips here at ANU did some modelling that would be around $12 billion a year needed to to actually lift income support to what's needed. But if we don't make those changes and the, if we don't address the kinds of issues that John has, has talked about, then we are going to accept that poverty, disadvantage, inequality and social exclusion is, is something that we're prepared to live with in Australia. I think there is a lot that we can do around tax reform. There is a lot that we can do around ensuring that um, it's, it's not in only individuals that are paying their way, but the corporations and what we sometimes might refer to as, as the big end of town, you know, are also paying their way. I think we are not going to deal with this by tweaking with the edges. We need deep structural reform. Um, and we need to be able to, well, we need to have a, a conversation about what kind of country we are prepared to accept and what level of disadvantage we're prepared to accept. I could talk to the two of you for such a long time about this topic, and I very much wish we had two or three hours for this. I, I would like to just touch on the framework that our, our new treasurer, Jim Chalmers, uh, a man in a really unenviable position, is the framework that he's currently working within and what options he might have. Uh, I'm struck that he is talking about ideas of wellbeing and, and listeners may know that several years ago now, Sharon and I went through a series of conversations around wellbeing economics as a different way of approaching our policy choices. So our, our, our new treasurer is talking about moving toward a wellbeing budget, uh, and I wonder what you make of this discussion of a wellbeing budget, John. What are your thoughts? Is this part of our solution? Oh, look, I think it's a it's a positive uh, change um, to look beyond uh, GDP um, because, as we know, GDP is is a pretty lousy measure of of well-being and really you know when you boil it down um you know economic activity should exist not with the primary purpose of enriching uh, a, a tiny 
a tiny, tiny minority um, of people on the planet. But uh, for the the main priority should be to ensure that we have what we need to live lives in dignity and for everyone to have a, a fair crack at happiness. Uh, and so changing that language is, I think, a really good first step. Um, but, you know, as as uh, as Sharon said, we, we, we can't afford to allow the current constrained fiscal conditions um, to to therefore dictate a uh, a uh, uh, a program of quasi austerity because that's what usually happens when when the screws are on fiscally when we you know when we talk about uh, you know um, you know b- budget restraint what it usually translates into our experience over the years has been that it's usually code for um, Ordinary people tightening their belts. The, the you know the people that you know Sharon uh, described. You know that fam- that family situation, which you know I found incredibly uh, an emotional experience just listening to you, Sharon. And I, I understand why you would find it emotional recounting it because you know nothing tells the story better than than that por- portrait that you um, you painted so poignantly of uh, you know of the, of the child. Not not saying that they're hungry because they don't want to see their mother eating less. So you know, is is that the consequence that we want that we are willing to accept for getting in you know, so called getting inflation under control? And I'm not in any way um, uh, disregarding the need precisely to do that. But should it come at that family's expense? Should they be the ones? That mother and child, should they be the ones that we automatically go to as default to say, sorry, someone's got to wear this, it just so happens it's you and and those who are in a slightly better uh, situation than you are. Why? We, are, we must, if we want to talk about well-being, we have to question that fundamental premise of austerity economics that, yep, someone's got to pay. Well, who's going to pay? The people who can least afford to pay, the people who don't have enough or at the moment, they should have less. You know, this this is just perverse thinking. And in terms of our economic future and our, and our future as a society and indeed as a planet, you know, we've got to say to ourselves, if we, um, you know, and Sharon said this before about you know the the um, you know the healing that needs to happen to people who've been told so often that they are bad. Um, what we're discussing here is a trauma. When people are forced to live, uh, um, you know, below the poverty line, and I agree that we need to do a lot of work in developing a a, a, a cogent poverty line that addresses uh, today's conditions, uh, indeed, you know, the very notion of whether we use a poverty line per se or, or other frames, I think we need to do work on that because if you can't measure it, it's difficult to change. Um, but all of that is an enormous trauma. People are you know, being belted around the heads and this lasts sometimes a lifetime and sometimes, of course, um, is, is associated with, uh, with a, a shorter lifetime, you know, quite literally. So is, is that what we're willing to do 
in order to manage the economy? And is that actually good economic management? Because the people that we, you know, we would be allowing to be traumatised are people who um, contribute or who want to contribute or who have the ability, the potential to contribute um, to, uh, to society, to the economy. Uh, and, you know, it's all a matter of making sure that pe- people have those essentials of life, a place to live, a place to work uh, uh, with, with, you know, decent wages, secure jobs, and if you can't work, then decent uh, income security, not, not begging, you know, uh, a place to, place to live, place to work, place to, to heal, place to learn. These are the essentials that we cannot compromise on. Absolutely. And I'm thinking again of Millie Rooney's report on the public good and the need for the basics in life and the things that actually matter and, and creating a world where we can care, contribute and, and, and connect. Sharon, do we need a wellbeing economic framework? Yeah, I'm, I'm just reflecting for a minute on, on what John just said, and, and that was so powerful. And I think he's absolutely right. We cannot go down an austerity pathway now that, that makes life more difficult for those who, um, who have no room to manoeuvre. You know, we've, we've seen what happens in Australia when we go down that pathway. We've seen in the UK and in other parts of the world how devastating that is. But, but Anna Greta, on a, on a wellbeing approach, I think this is actually a really important conversation and this could be a turning point conversation in in this country. I think a wellbeing budget does give us a way from stepping back from a reliance on GDP as a dominant measure of a nation's success or progress. And as John says, you know, what what we measure matters. You know, it signals what we care about, it signals how we're going to move forward. We all know, I think, the shortcomings of GDP. It measures what a, a nation produces. And Marilyn Waring said this on a conversation we had with her, with her Anna Greta, in a, a previous pod, you know, but it, it values some things that just don't improve our lives, like the destruction of natural resources, like exploitative forms of labour. And it doesn't measure things that really matter to us, like the unpaid care that we do for one another on a daily basis. So I think a wellbeing approach does give us a way of making things that matter visible, the things that have so often been rendered invisible when we focus on GDP. So we can begin thinking about and measuring, for example, not just the unemployment rate, but we can start to also make visible issues around the security of work, the quality of work, paying conditions, what we're asking people to do for what is often very meagre income. We can start to think not just about whether there is healthcare or education, but what those services look like, whether they are high quality, whether people are treated with care and respect within those services. And these things can begin to really transform people's lives and transform our society. So I think these conversations about the shortcomings of GDP and what else we need to do, how we can shift to a well-being society, and I'd, I'd prefer to call it a well-being society than just a well-being economy, I think they're, they're not only valuable, they're essential. And they may help us to move away what, from what Sharon Friel describes as that consumptogenic system, away from a system that's ultimately based on exploitation of nature, of people, of communities, and, and of knowledge. 
And I think that's one way of really improving the quality of people's lives and the quality of, of our society. So I think this shift is a really important one. It deserves our support. It's not something that can be done easily and it requires a lot of deep thinking. There are going to be wrong steps along the way because this is very new. But there are countries that we can look to that are, that are doing this and I think it opens the way for a conversation about a society that's more inclusive, that's more compassionate, that values what really matters to people. And I think Australians signal that in the last election, they want transformation. So we've got an opportunity to do that. And I think this is a first step, but it's not the end of the story. John Falzon, Sharon Bessel, this has been one of the most extraordinary conversations in a long time. It's been such a delight to be interviewing the two of you about one of the most important issues we face. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and your empathy. Thank you, Anna Greta. Thank you, Sharon. Thanks, Anna Greta. Thanks, John. It was a fabulous conversation to be part of. Listeners, I'm sure you'll agree with me that that was one of the most profound episodes we've recorded in a while. Uh, I'm reminded a little bit of the extinction conversation with Kelly O'Shaughnessy earlier in the year, but we, we, this need for compassion and understanding of the impact of our policy choices is so important. It is easy to intellectualise the choices that we see in day-to-day policy discussions, understanding budgetary trade-offs and the challenge of balancing the budget. Listening particularly to Sharon Bessel take our federal policy framework and macroeconomic approach straight into the lives of those who live with the challenge of precarity reminds us of this powerfully destructive consequence of the choices that we make at a federal level. And between John and Sharon, they've offered us this extraordinary insight into how we can make better choices, choices that are inclusive and caring, choices that will improve the health and well-being of the people who live in our country and in, in the way in which we care for the environment around it. We can choose to care for community, to address and to care for those who, who live with precariousness. We can avoid precarity, and that's a remarkable investment for our community today and into the future. Policy Forum Pod is produced by policyforum.net. We'll leave a link to the publications and the sources that we've mentioned in today's show in the show notes. Thank you so much again for joining us for this episode. We will be back again next week with another episode, but in the meantime, you can get in touch with us via Twitter, Facebook or email. We really love to get listeners' feedback and thoughts on the episode. Thank you so much for listening, and I'm looking forward to being back uh, in the co-host role with Sharon Bessel again next week. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 